0: You don't want to be what everyone else is doing. You need to separate yourself. And it's all about establishing relationships and just taking a little bit of extra time to think about the other side of the coin as well.
1: Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so from multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate, from co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Pearlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. So this month, I'm giving away a document called Breaking Down the LOI, which will walk you through the different segments of a letter of intent, which is the non-binding document you send a seller when you offer to purchase their property. You can find the document at www.elliepearlman.com resources. And if you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us and write in a review. That would be highly appreciated. So today's guest is Kyle Mitchell. Kyle is a real estate entrepreneur who has a focus on multifamily syndication and currently has $17 million in asset under management. He's the managing partner and co-founder of Limitless Estates and co-hosts a weekly podcast called Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate. Welcome to the show,
0: Kyle. Thanks for having me on, Ellie. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell me and the listeners a little bit about you and how you got started buying real estate?
0: Yeah, sure. I started buying real estate back in 2013. And that was more to build some passive income at the time while I had a full-time job. Back then, I was in the corporate world. I was a regional manager for a golf management company. And basically, I liken that to the same thing as a property management company for apartments, except for different asset classes, which is golf courses. So cities and municipalities hired us to come in and manage their properties. So I did that for about 15 years. And At that time, I had invested in single-family homes only when I started in 2013. I did that for about three or four years, and those were just turnkeys. So like I said, I was just trying to get some passive income at the time. And it just so happened that with my job, my company was shrinking, and I wanted to keep growing. And so I essentially got bored in my position and started looking for other things to do with my type A personality, and I found multifamily real estate. And as soon as I found that I just fell in love with it, I fell in love with the business metrics of it. And I understood it very well because of my past experience. And so as soon as that happened, I started educating myself dove right in and 11 months later, I left my full time job to invest in multifamily real estate full time.
1: That's amazing. So 11 months until you basically made the ultimate you know, transfer. And now that's what you do full time.
0: Yes. And I wouldn't suggest it to everyone to, you know, I left my full-time job before I actually had our first deal under contract. Thankfully, my wife was supportive of the idea and she still has her full-time job. So she supports us while we're kind of pursuing our long-term wealth through multifamily as well.
1: Yeah. Same here. I left the corporate world and you need to have some sort of a support system there because it takes a lot longer to get the first deal than you think. It's always, yeah, it's always longer. It always takes more, you know, time, effort, and money than you think. So I want to kind of move, you know, start the conversation with focusing on the asset portion of our discussion. So Kyle, you invest in class B and C multifamily properties. Can you explain the audience the different asset classes we have all the way from A to D, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And those could be the neighborhoods that they're in or the age of them as well. So there's a couple different ways to look at that. But typically, when you're talking about the age of a property, you know, class A's are brand new construction, less than 10 years old, certainly. Class B would be anywhere from 10 to 20 years old. Class C, you know, a little bit older than that, 20 to 30, and so on. But also, you're investing in the class of the area that the neighborhood is in. And so if you're in a neighborhood with extremely low incomes, a lot of people above the poverty line, then in that case, you're going to be investing in a class D area. Whereas if you're in an area with a lot of high paying jobs, you know, a lot of shopping centers and a really safe neighborhood, then maybe that's more of a class A and slightly a class B neighborhood. So we typically invest in class B and C, which is typical workforce housing, general workforce people, you know, every day, mom and pop people working day in, day out and really kind of living paycheck to paycheck, I would say.
1: And what did you choose to focus on Class B and C?
0: Yeah, for a couple reasons. Number one, the need for housing in that space is extreme throughout the United States, not just in the markets that we live in. There's just a huge demand and need for that type of housing. You know, there's a lot of building going on in the United States right now and a lot of construction, but they don't, they just don't build class B and C housing. And so there's a huge need for people to be living there. And I mean, I live in Los Angeles. I don't invest in Los Angeles, but just the housing crisis here alone, people are having to move out further and further from downtown LA and where they work and having to commute in because there's a huge need for housing. There's just not enough of it. And so the demand for that is the number one reason why we invest in that asset class. But also, you know, a lot of these landlords out there who have these properties just don't take very good care of them. They don't take very good care of the residents. And that's a piece that we really take to heart. And we want to make sure that when we go into a property and improve it or invest in it, we're also improving the lives of the people that live there and making it better for them and and making it a safe environment for them to live in. So those are the top two reasons why we invest in B&C. Yeah,
1: I could not agree more. And then when you look at class B&C properties, what do you, in your opinion, is, what do you think is the most common misconception about those type of assets?
0: I think more for the C-class. I think when people hear C-class, they think slumlord a little bit. And really, it's, it's not, right? Like I said, it's workforce housing. These people have jobs, they go to school, they have families, and they're trying to raise their families in these properties. And that's where they live. And a lot of people assume that, you know, we're a slumlord type of investor. And that's really where you get into the D and even F areas and and F type of properties. But I think they all of a sudden seem to think that there's high crime in that area, or it's just not a very well run property. And I think that's one of the reasons why we invest in that asset class, because we want to kind of get rid of that stigma and really do right and provide people with a good safe place to stay and also provide our investors with a great return.
1: Mm -hmm. And speaking of returns, what do you think would be the average, you know, or expected return from a class B and C deal?
0: Yeah, it depends on what market that you're looking into over the past couple years. I think the, you know, mindset has definitely kind of had to shift a little bit and the returns have become a little bit more, I would say, stable compared to where they were two or three years ago when they were through the roof. You know, we focus on trying to find Assets that cash flow eight to ten percent, and you know, in that fifteen plus IRR, that is getting harder and harder to do as yeah. the peak, you know, comes to an end here, but. We still look for it. We are not one of those investment companies that goes out and just buys anything. We stick to our criteria, and we're patient with what we purchase, so that we can make sure that you know we definitely put our investors first.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely getting harder to find those deals, especially in very solid, you know, in hot markets. And it, it looks like everyone is making money in real estate right now. I can tell that this is. Not the case. I know several deals. Fortunately, you know, not my deals, but I know several deals that, that are not doing that well. You just don't hear those stories. You only hear the great stories with thirty, forty, fifty percent IRR, which draws, I think, more people to buy real estate and makes the competition a bit more fierce, which ultimately leads to kind of a, a deal flow that might be great. But the bottom line is that most deals just don't work, even if your deal flow is significant. And we're going to talk also about, you know, how you leverage relationships to maintain a healthy deal flow. And, you know, when it comes to multifamily, if you had a magic wand and you can wave it and find the ultimate, the best deal besides returns, of course, everyone wants to get a deal with the highest returns. What type of deal would that be?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you completely took out returns, I would just be looking for a property where you can provide a class living to lower income housing, you know, so, and this doesn't really exist very much out there, but where the Mm -hmm. rents are well under $1,000, but you still have the amenities of a class A property. And, you know, Maybe eventually something like that could exist. I mean, you know, who knows nowadays with technology and the way people are creatively thinking, but for me, that's what it would be is just to be able to provide this amazing living environment for people that, you know, right now can't afford it. I mean, as the rank growth in the nation continues to go up, wage growth is just not keeping up at this point. And you like to see wage growth keep up, but at a certain point, it just can't. And so You know, it's getting tougher and tougher and more difficult for people to afford where they're living.
1: So, Kyle, you're basically the properties that you're purchasing are value add multifamily deals. And this is a great segue to the strategy portion. When it comes to strategy, your strategy is basically to focus on value add. Why value add? I mean, why not buying just a nice, you know, higher end? properties with you know, all the newest and nicest you know, amenities and high paid tenants. Why not go to those type of assets? Why go to class B and C and focus on value add?
0: Yeah, from my perspective, because it reduces risk and you know it's adding value back in. It's definitely certainly more of a heavy lift and you're doing more work. There's, it's more management intensive for sure. But if you can find the right asset with the right amount of value add to it, you force appreciation versus having the market appreciate. So you're not reliant on only the market to provide returns for you you are able to force that appreciation by, you know, like I said, putting money back into the property, whether it's adding amenities, you know, bringing in better property management to run a more efficient business, anything like that, and just adding value to the residents. By doing that, you increase your NOI, which essentially increases the value of the property. So I like that you can force the appreciation versus having to hope for it. With class A, yes, you can purchase a class A and definitely add more value back in, And in certain areas, Class A certainly makes sense. But I do like the lower risk of being able to add value and force that appreciation.
1: And what are the usual low-hanging fruits when you're buying properties? What are the first things that you do strategically that you focus on in order to increase the NOI and to implement the value-add plan?
0: Yeah, for me, because I have a management background, I look straight at the P&Ls and the financials and I try and find the expense lines first. And I love a property that has extremely high expenses and probably some deferred maintenance. So the first thing we do when we go into a property is tackle the deferred maintenance that are creating day-in, day-out expenses, like plumbing leaks or roof leaks or something like that, where if you fix that item, you completely remove that from your day-to-day expenses, which Mm -hmm. ultimately increases your NOI. So that's the number one thing I look for is a mismanaged property, maybe a long-term owner that just hasn't put money back in, or a property management company that has a bad reputation in the market for just not having systems in place. There's a lot of mom and pop property management companies out there that don't have the systems and the scale in order to manage some of these properties. And those are the ones you want to look at and say, okay, if we go in there, we know we can manage these things much more efficiently and probably drive more money to the bottom line. Besides that, you know, we look for much of what everyone else looks for, which is you know, uh, rents below market at current condition, and then what they would be at, at renovated condition as well. Because there's some opportunities out there where you might not need to put much into the interiors of the units, but still get more market rent, because they're just well below.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, sometimes you can definitely find those properties where rents are just below market, and you don't need to put any money and improve the, maybe the operations, but not, you don't need to put any money in the units and renovate them. And you can just push. And we have one of those properties where rents were on the market. We were just able to push rents by 20, 25% without touching the units. So that's always, you know, there are not many of them out there, but that's always, you know, an interesting deal when you see it. And, you know, when it comes to, if we're talking about renovating units, as a strategy, do you like to renovate? all the units? Or do you like to leave some room, some meat on the bone for the next buyer?
0: I like to leave some meat on the bone for the next buyer. Definitely in our market, which is in Phoenix and Tucson, there are more value-add investors than there are turnkey buyers. And so I think that's number one is you need to understand your market because maybe there are some markets out there where people just would prefer turnkey and cash flow versus a value add investment. But in Mm -hmm. our markets, they like value add. So we definitely want to leave some meat on the bone. Even in our 42 unit that we purchased, that was our first property. We did redo all 42 units, but we implemented also a premium unit for about eight or nine of them so that the next investor can come in and do the remaining 30 units on that premium unit. So we had two different levels of renovation but you always want to make sure that the next investor has enough, you know, value in that property to purchase it. You're going to definitely widen your buyer pool by doing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I want to kind of move to our third part of the interview, you talk about the process of building relationships in order to get deals. At what point when you move to a new market, do you start establishing relationships and how do you do that?
0: Yeah, I would say immediately. You know, we're hyper focused in two different markets, which are both in Arizona, Phoenix and Tucson. And so we don't kind of move markets very often, especially when we believe in those two markets. We are evaluating some others right now, but I would say through referrals and by getting out there. I mean, if you live in state or where in your backyard, if you invest in your backyard, you're definitely at an advantage, but we don't. And so the one thing that we did to separate ourselves from out of state investors in Arizona was to get out there. I mean, I'm out there two to three times a month shaking hands with brokers, buying them lunch, coffee, meeting with investors. We even host a meetup out there that I fly out there for to host to, you know, establish myself out in the markets that we invest in. But I think it's really getting in front of people face to face. You know, they say multifamily is a team sport. And part of that team is not only You know, who's on your direct team of the general partnership, but who is on your team from, you know, lawyers and brokers and contractors. I mean, all those people are a part of your team. And just talking to them over the phone is not enough, especially in a market as hot as today. They're not gonna listen to some guy who's calling from Southern California saying I wanna buy apartments because they talk to a hundred of me every day. So, you know, when I first started, I was driving out with my wife to Tucson. It's an eight hour drive. We would leave at two in the morning to get there at nine. We would stay all day meeting with brokers, property management, touring properties, and then drive back. And so those are the things that set us apart from other people. And it was really only relationships that were able to get us our deals so far. It was not finding, you know, a direct to seller or a broker calling me, it was really me reaching out to them and building relationships with them.
1: And what are the best practices to establish solid relationships, especially, you know, if you're doing it out of state?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people want to make it as easy and effective efficient on themselves to try and find deals. So, you know, they may send a bunch of emails, right? But sending a bunch of emails, is not establishing that relationship. It's like yesterday, actually, I made 38 calls to brokers, 38 wow. different brokers. I only got to of about 25 of them, but I left 13 others messages. And that's going to create more of a relationship, right? Because they're going to remember me. And now I'm calling them in the beginning of the year. So I can ask, how was their Christmas? How was their New Year's? And then they tell me about their kids and how they went on you know, vacation to Florida or whatever it is. And so now I have that information that I keep. And the next time I talk to them, I bring it up. And so there you're establishing rapport. You're showing that you care. You're not, you know, just emailing a broker and, never getting back to them. I think that's number one. And then the other thing is, is always get back to a broker, whether a deal makes sense to you or not. Follow yeah. up with them and give them feedback because they love that. They need that in order to provide you the right deal. And if you're going to be one of the people that just says, eh, this isn't for me, I'll talk to them next time. Well, what kind of relationship is that? you know? And so on our first deal, the broker, I actually called them up and we actually spent an hour on the phone going through my underwriting on a couple deals before the deal that we actually got. And so by doing that, you build a rapport kind of like you do with a business partner or anyone else.
1: Yeah, that's a great tip. I think most people, most investors do exactly what you do. They're trying to be efficient with their time. So they're not spending any time giving, you know, brokers' feedback. But the broker, you know, they spend time actually thinking about who should I present it to, reaching out. And so they put a you know effort into reaching out to you and putting the deal in front of you. Once you get a deal in front of you, Have to be very thorough in your feedback, even if it doesn't work. So, as you mentioned, and I think you're 100% right, so they can learn what you like and what you don't like and understand that you're seriously looking into the deal that you've put, you know, time and effort. Because if even if you had done that and you didn't really reach out back to them and, and explain why it doesn't work, they don't know that you've done all the work on the back end. Then, you know, that's also part of why it's important to. Get back to them with feedback. I think it's absolutely right.
0: Yeah. I mean, put yourself in the broker's shoes for a second yeah. and understanding that, okay, so I just called him and I said, hey, do you have any deals? And then he says, yeah, sure, let me get you one. He sent you one, and that's all he ever hears from you. Why would he ever want to send you a deal? I mean, there's just absolutely no reason. So you've got to really stand out because you don't want to be what everyone else is doing. You need to separate yourself, and it's all about establishing relationships and just taking a little bit of extra time to think about the other side of the coin as well
1: yeah absolutely all right kyle well right now we covered i think we talked about the assets the process the strategy and now it's time for the lightning round questions are you
0: ready let's do it all right what's your favorite hobby My favorite hobby has just become recent in the last couple of weeks. My wife and I now on Sundays, we actually go out and buy food and hand it out to the homeless. And so Mm. that's something that we're trying to change for 2020 and make a habit. And I know it may not sound like a hobby, but really we're focused on giving back. And it's something that we want to do. That's part of our lives. And so I would consider that a hobby.
1: All right. That's awesome. What's the number one thing that people don't know about you?
0: I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, so maybe they know now, but I'm a big golfer. I used to play golf professionally in Southern California and my wife is also a professional golfer or used to be, and she can beat me any day of the week.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is this how you guys met?
0: Yeah. We work for different companies, but through golf.
1: All right. Awesome. What do you wish you had known when you started out?
0: How your mindset really matters. I think that, you know, right now I know the sky's the limit after putting in two years of work of hard work on this and being able to meet the people that I've been able to meet. But if you just have the right mindset and you just keep plugging away and have persistence in this business, the sky really is the limit and you can go as big as you want to go.
1: Awesome. I couldn't have said it better. What's the number one advice you have for a real estate investor that wants to scale their business?
0: So I think always think five years out. Where do you need to be in five years and then work backwards? And that's how we were able to, to you know, go from a two million dollar property to fifteen million and you just you just reverse engineer it. And so you need to reverse engineer your goals almost and say, okay, this is where I need to be in five years. Where do I want to be four, three, two, one? And what are the steps you need to take daily? And that's what we're doing right now. And right now we're not big enough to have a full team, but we're bringing on some interns and planning on hiring someone by the end of the year. And you almost want to do something like that before you actually need it so that when you are scaled and ready to go, you know, your company can withstand that scale versus having to go through the bumps and bruises by not thinking ahead.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Kyle, thank you so much for spending the last 25 minutes with me. If you know someone wants to reach out to you, where can people find you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We offer a free passive investor's guide on our website. So if you want to head over there, I'll talk all about passive investing. And you can head to www.limitless-estates.com.
1: All right, perfect. Thank you so much again.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.